Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show today, no empty seats on this show as we pick over the big stories and PR own goals from the World Cup. A tale of two Bobs. Bob Iger dramatically returns to Disney as Bob Chapek is forced out. Elon Musk looks to reinstate the banished and exiled on Twitter. Plus, we talk kids TV with the team behind BAFTA's Children's Awards. And which of our legal eagle guests will soar in the media quiz? That's all coming up on this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, a 10-minute miscommunication on Slack between journalists at the Associated Press led to its false report of Russian missiles crossing into NATO member Poland. An inquiry into Hertfordshire Police's response to recent protests on the M25 found that arrests of four journalists were not justified. Sky will launch a brand new 24-hour ad-free kids channel in February 2023. And The Athletic plans to double its coverage of professional women's sports through a multi-year partnership with Google. But on today's show, we have four media experts with us to tackle the latest media headlines. First up, we have Charlotte Tobit of the Press Gazette. Charlotte, welcome. Thanks, Jake. Tell us about the Press Gazette's little... You've had a little facelift, haven't you? Oh, yeah, it's quite exciting. After many, many, many years of the same website, we have upgraded. It looks a lot more whizzy, I hope people agree. Yeah, it like, lets us highlight stories, obviously, in different ways and for longer. And I just think it's quite exciting. So it's sort of a new era for us. So everyone go check out pressgazette.co.uk. <laughs> It looks really sharp. No, please do. Also with us, Dan Taylor-Watt, an expert in all things digital. Good morning, Dan. Welcome. Morning, Jake. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You've you've been... You, have you been busy apart from you know some sleepless nights with a with a young young baby? Yeah, well, I've been uh, watching the World Cup with mixed feelings. Obviously, um, I've also been written a couple of pieces, one about fast channels and one about uh, Netflix's strategic U-turns. You can read those on my website. We will do. And uh, James Ball is also with us, a global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Welcome, James. It's a pleasure to be here. What's been keeping you busy? <laughs> so well, we've uh, we've had a bit of a publishing rush uh, ahead of, of Christmas, uh, including getting a big story out about how uh, critics of Catter uh, got uh, mysteriously hacked, which we did with the Sunday Times. So, sort of dealing with the fallout of that. Yeah, it was an excellent read, and we covered it right here on the podcast. What's the fallout? What you, can you tell us more? It sounds like you're uh, sounds like you might have some other stories up your sleeve. <laughs> so well, <laughs> you know. 
People tend to talk after these, but, uh, you know, working as an editor for an investigative organisation, I would say a good half of my job is dealing with lawyers. So uh, been been doing a lot of that lately. Okay, okay. Uh, It sounds very intriguing. And finally, we've got Adam Crafton, a reporter at The Athletic, and uh, Adam is in Qatar. So welcome, Adam. We really appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Um, It's got me out of uh, the midday heat for a bit, so it's uh, a pleasure (laughs) to be here. So is it it's genuinely hot out there? Today it is, yeah. I mean, most days it's been pretty, it's been pretty manageable. It's a bit strange, though, with the, the way the media works out here. They have this huge convention centre, which is almost like uh, the kind of thing you'd use, usually use for like huge exhibitions and stuff like that, expos, um, which they've turned into one central media hub. So it's a bit more like an Olympic Games than the World Cup, because ordinarily with a World Cup, you'd have people all over a huge country, whereas this has been contained into sort of 40, 40 kilometres. But the biggest complaint amongst most media has been just the aircon is so cold that most people in the media are actually just walking around with hoodies in their bags for most places that they go to because you're just being blasted. And you bec- it becomes like normal when you're, when you're in there and you walk out and you're like, it's actually like minus five degrees in the media centre. So, yeah, obviously far more serious issues at the World Cup, but that's, uh, that's been an ongoing issue as well. Tell us about what it's been like to cover Qatar and how that compares to previous World Cups. I know you've just said that it, because everything's in close proximity, it's obviously sort of practically very different. The central bit of it is still, you know, there's still a load of good football, right, um, that, that's going on. And I think what we're seeing this week is, you know, with results like Saudi Arabia beating Argentina, Japan beating Germany, Neymar getting injured for Brazil, you know, the, the storylines are starting to take over. I, this has been a very, very different tournament. I think in terms of the way it's being covered in the UK in particular, I don't think that's necessarily been the case if you look across the world. I think the UK, Germany, Scandinavia is pretty unique actually in the way this tournament's being framed and particularly on on the television broadcasts. I think we're seeing an attention on the human rights aspects of the tournament that uh, an engagement during live coverage of matches that we simply haven't seen in the past, you know, I mean, to have sort of Roy Keane, um, who, you know, is mostly known for just sort of destroying footballers for whatever they've done wrong from a football point of view during the, during the 45 minutes, 90 minutes when he's analysing a game, you know, going really, really hard on human rights issues. And I think that is making a difference to the, to the cut through and the level of expectation. I think the migrant workers issue ha- has disappeared a little bit you know, in terms of coverage of it since the tournament started. There was a huge amount of coverage of it before the tournament. There was a lot of really good reporting from Nepal, for example, across um, various different publications. But I think now the tournament started, that aspect of it has disappeared a little bit and it's focused more on the kind of notions of protest or activism. And then there's obviously the ongoing issues with Iran as well, which are just completely extraordinary. So, yeah, and the other interesting thing, sorry, it's a long answer, but you know, Russia are banned from this tournament and no one's really talking about it, which is kind of interesting in itself. And you almost start to think, would there actually be more focus on Russia if they were here, right? Imagine if Russia were playing in these games, would the conversation be far more focused actually on Russia, Ukraine, which has almost disappeared into a nether of World Cup chatter a little bit so that, that just struck me over the last few days as well that's really interesting i haven't really thought about that and um I, I guess that kind of underlines your point in a way doesn't it i mean we we always knew this world cup would be different did you expect 
these issues to be sort of threaded through the football in the way that they have been? I, I think so. I think I, w- I was very conscious there was going to be, there was always going to be this situation around the idea of an LGBT visibility or protest because contrary to what particularly the English Football Association had been telling fans in terms of they'd received all these assurances and if you want to travel everything's going to be fine and all this kind of thing. Reality is the Qatari authorities had never really said anything clear on the record. They were always saying things such as in very vague terms it was things like everyone is welcome, you know this tournament's for all but they would never use the acronym LGBT. It was always caveated with as long as you respect the culture of the place that you're going to, which meant that everything was always very vague, very open to interpretation of whichever security agencies happened to be on the ground at the time, because Qatar was kind of using security agencies from Turkey, from Pakistan, some of their own as well. So yes, FIFA had said, you know, rainbow flags will be allowed in stadiums, for example. But the reality, some of this guidance was given to those who were working out here, but it was never on the record from Qatar. And what FIFA have discovered out here on the ground is FIFA aren't the directors of the show at the Qatar World Cup, right? They, they, they don't run the, the penal code of Qatar. And it's probably been a little bit humbling in some respects for FIFA to discover that there are more powerful forces at play at times. So that was always going to be, uh, going to be a conversation where, where situations would flare up. Uh, and clearly that's only been heightened by this idea that some of the European associations wanted to do a gesture or a protest or, or whatever it was that that original no discrimination armband uh, was in te- was intending to be. And what about your own reporting? Have you have you felt like you've been able to approach these issues with the freedom that you need? I mean, certainly where I work, yeah, at the, at the Athletic, we've been able to do that. I think we're in a pretty strong position out out here in that you know I, I'm a gay reporter. My boss. Heitz Kajelski is a gay guy as well, which I think, you know, it, it has been what I think it has been a major issue in the media reporting from the UK over the past week that there's, and even in the decisions that are being taken by FIFA and the European associations, there's next to no LGBT people in the room, right? And I think that has shined through in some of, in some of the coverage, unfortunately, that, you know, the, the, the perspective um, I don't think has really been reflected. I'm not sure how many, you know, even in, in, in news reporting of what's happened over the last few days, how many, you know, uh, LGBT fans, for example, have actually been consulted as part of that coverage. We asked the English FA, for example, on the day where they decided in the end not to wear the armband because they said FIFA had threatened to give them a yellow card, whether they'd actually consulted any LGBT person before they decided not to wear the armband. And they just said the decision was made quickly. So I think you can presume from that that the answer the answer is no, right? I think from that aspect, it's been frustrating. It's been pretty. It's been pretty draining. It's like a drip feed of issues, and and you also wonder like that there is a real toxicity around the rainbow, the West in the Middle East, particularly online. That that is something that is really un- unfortunately shining through, and you you start to wonder whether everything you know even those who are very well intentioned like I think that you know the Germans did a protest the backlash against that in the Middle East online has been really really strong really really strong the idea that 
the West is coming here, telling Qatar how to live, telling them how to run their country. So yeah, it's all a bit it's all a bit dispiriting from that perspective. Okay, Adam, it's really fascinating to have your insights. I'm going to bring in the others and just sort of talk a bit about the coverage here in the UK. I think a good place to start is probably the BBC, actually, which decided not to show the opening ceremony, which is not unusual. Gary Lineker pointed out that the BBC has done the same with previous World Cups and, and Euro competitions. But it felt like a bit of a statement this time round. And tonally, Gary Lineker approached the opening show in a very different way. What, what did you make of it, Dan? I mean, you, you used to work at the BBC. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, it's the BBC absolutely doing their job back to that old Ruthian principle of informing, educating and entertaining. I think that the you don't need to leave the informing to the news. Tonally, for me, it, it felt right. It felt very factual and not falling into the trap of, you know, human rights should be presented as a two sided debate, which uh, is occasionally you can you can get into a real pickle there. So as an ex-employee of uh, of 20 years I was pleased to see that I was pleased to see yeah Alex Scott done the armband as well and um, so yeah I was sort of felt like a, a good response when uh, the team hadn't hadn't followed through on the pitch and James do you, do you think I mean do you think the BBC is sort of continuing to get that balance right between the football and showcasing some of the issues that that Adam has talked about yeah, I think the BBC and actually the, the British media in general have done a, a damn sight better than the FA and uh, the squad uh, in terms of representation, certainly for LGBT fans and that that sort of side of things. I think the football will take over as the tournament goes on. But I think if, if Qatar was hoping for a completely easy ride on this on the international stage, the media has sort of shown it can walk and chew gum. Um I don't think the quality of coverage of the games has suffered just by sort of talking about the context around it a bit more. So yeah, actually it's it's a pretty good grade for for uh, the coverage, uh, much, much less so for the FA. Jala, has anything stood out to you? Can I just echo what everyone else has said? I think there's been a good balance between sort of news and sport. I think... Um we're not we're we're doing better at um i found it interesting what gary lineker said on the media show that um that he considers now that everyone was sports washed by russia last time around and i would say that's not happening at least so much this time i think there's a lot of discussion of the debate and and the issues but it's not taking away from the football it's sort of yeah, I think it's like newsrooms being able to use their full spectrum of stuff. It's not just confined to sport, and that seems to be working really well. I, I think I think Charlotte's right. I think there's there's kind of like three things going on out here. One is very very justified criticism of, of the the Qatari regime. I think two there is there is some level of actually just bad faith criticism of Qatar in the sense of it's held in a different place, a different part of the world things are different we can't drink we can't do the things that we like to do some of it i think is unfair and has undertones of basically we don't want this thing to ever be in the middle east i think there's as i said before there's a lot of justified criticism as well i think the third thing is is absolutely as charlotte says which is i think that quite a lot of people feel a bit stupid for what happened in 2018 and kind of don't want to be stung again and i think qatar is almost feeling the brunt of that there's almost been like this awakening to what is the purpose of sport events? What is it being used for? Why do these 
regimes want it, um, and, and what do they gain from it? And and Qatar, Qatar, look, Qatar is not Russia, right? I think we have to be careful about you know bringing Russia and Qatar into the same conversation. Like Qatar is not an expansionist state, right? We're not going to see Qatar invade its neighbours over the next few years. What it is looking for is it's looking for soft power, it's looking for stability in the region, it's looking to strengthen its own role in the region, expand its economic portfolio. Um, but also what this is all part of, and this is something that sport has to reconcile, its with, uh, reconcile itself with massively over the next few years, is how does this global game come to terms with the Middle East taking a really, really central role um, in the wealth and the power uh, and the hosting of, of major events because we're going to see a huge number of events go to Qatar, go to Saudi Arabia over the next few years. That is going to happen, right? The 2030 World Cup, I think most of us who are sort of working in sports news would say at the moment the favourites for that are Saudi Arabia along with Egypt and Greece, that bid. So all these conversations that are happening at the moment about about whether it's alcohol, whether it's gay rights, whether it's women's rights, they're not going anywhere, these discussions. So is is there something of an elephant in the room here, though, as well, in that the discussion that's being had a little less is why is this tournament in Qatar and why is it happening in November and why actually have even people like Seth Blatter come out and sort of not quite sort of said it out loud but has said it shouldn't happen is FIFA ever going to have to address the corruption or are we every four years going to have to sort of watch another another bid win for terrible reasons? Well, I, I think FIFA would say, I suppose for balance, that you know there was an investigation after 2018-2022 bids. A lot of people were unsatisfied by the outcome of, of that. Um, that there's been criminal charges to some of the people that were involved in, in the voting process. The problem that FIFA have got is, despite all of what came out of those 2018-2022 bids, those events still happened, so that it will always be tarnished as a result. You know, look, 2026 is, is in the United States. Who knows who the president of the United States is going to be by the time that World Cup comes around, right, in, in, a, in a few years' time? And that's kind of the theme of what people are saying out here. I mean, by that, I mean the Qataris, the Saudis, it's like... Well, you're going to have a World Cup in the United States in four years. You're going to write about this. You're going to write about that. You're going to write about that. And there's, there's a danger that you sort of just end up in this loop of like, what about you? What about you? What about you? What about you? And just sort of concluding, oh, it's all a bit complicated and therefore never, nothing ever gets done. Nothing ever changes. Nothing really gets achieved. And it's difficult. And just to, just to directly address James's point in terms of FIFA, the major issue that they've got is they've got a, a president in Gianni Infantino who is delusional pretty dangerous in terms of the way that he speaks. I mean, he said in his speech last week on Saturday, they said he went to North Korea to see whether it would be possible to host a joint World Cup with South Korea, a women, a joint women's World Cup, right? Like, nobody goes to Pyongyang, right? And then you've got some football executive going on a flight over to North Korea to try and heal Korea, right? So that's the kind of delusion that is currently existing in FIFA. That is extraordinary. Um, and... He also turns around and says, "There's no room for politics in, no room right. for uh, politics in football." <laughs> yeah, I mean it's extraordinary, but that, I'm sure we could talk about this for a very long time. But we're going to have to move on to some other issues. Adam, look, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us, and all the best with the rest of the tournament. And we hope England go well. Thank you.
Moving on from football, a shocker at Disney, where Bob Iger has been reinstated as chief executive, uh, meaning Bob Chapek was unceremoniously ousted after nearly three years in the top job. Dan, could you just fill us in on the background here a bit? Well, I think the interesting thing is that the Bob Iger never really went away. So after he, he stepped down as CEO, he became executive chairman. Um, it's also come to light recently. He was on a, a $10 million five-year deal to advise Bob Chapek, uh, even though Bob Chapek didn't necessarily advise. He's, he's back now. I think it's going to be quite a different tour of duty for him this time around so I think they've they've just had some eye-watering losses 1.6 billion on the on the streaming side so I think there's going to have to be some fairly serious uh, trimming of of budgets going on there and I'm not sure the the tricks he played last time around in terms of some serious acquisitions of of IP are going to play out quite the same yeah it'll be how he gets on a second time around. Charlotte, this feels like it could be like a Harvard case study in poor succession planning. <laughs> uh, the fact that it's sort of come to this and now uh, and now Iger's back in the in the hot seat. Yeah, it's kind of sh- makes me want to watch Succession again. Just like, it's no, it's no better than that. No, <laughs> can't be that bad. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? And they were doing so well with Disney Plus, like the subscriber numbers jumped up so much quicker than Netflix did, you know, had a much um, shorter trajectory. And I wonder if that's going to be part of the problem now, if they want to keep growing. But actually, um, it's kind of a discussion across the media industry of all kinds at the moment with subscriptions is that with the cost of living crisis and also just the fact there's so many subscriptions, like can there just be Disney Plus massive and then everyone else struggling for the bite or is Disney Plus part of that? Or And and does that indicate it'll be the same for, say, new subscriptions, you know, people struggling for a piece of the pie and declining even if they were doing really well? I think that's an interesting thing to watch, sort of what they're going to do next. I know that they're doing their ad-supported next like Netflix has just done, but... Um, that's kind of what I'm watching now. Do you think this is a lot about streaming, James, in, in terms of who, who wins that battle in the future? And, and Disney wants to... I mean, ab- absolutely. I, I mean, the streaming wars feel like they're going to leave no one alive. Disney, in many ways, is winning the streaming wars, but at what cost? What's sort of interesting is streaming was supposed to wean the industry off advertising, you know, if you're still in the advertising game, you have to structure your business differently. You have to think about your content differently. You have to build it into the experience. The The whole model had been to shift away from it and it's creeping back in. It's it's a drug that we, we are addicted to as an industry. It does, as others have said, show succession planning is hard. Iger is kind of coming back in for a caretaker shift. But investors liked it. I mean, Disney jumped about 10%, which has got to be a bit galling for the outgoing CEO. But Disney did this well. This was not sort of the HBO Max debacle. It certainly wasn't CNN+. And so the fact that you can have pretty much the dream rollout and still be in this much trouble sort of does suggest there's more trouble ahead for streaming to me. What says that Bob Iger is going to get it right second time round when he didn't? get it right the first time around because I mean this is absolutely brutal isn't it I mean there was absolutely no fanfare no send-off for for Chapek at all was there yeah I mean I think I feel it's a bit harsh on Bob Chapek really in terms of a lot of those factors were 
economic and, and macro as everyone's fond of saying now, but actually, you know, it was the strategy that Bob Iger set in train around Disney Plus and, and spending to scale was always going to be expensive. This, you know, it's not a big surprise. It took Netflix a lot of money to to get him. So I think it's it's interesting that they've they said uh, that Bob Iger's uniquely situated, the board said that he's uniquely situated, which in terms of succession is, again, is a slightly odd thing to to say. But I think it's the, the realisation they, they now need to move, move so quickly in terms of organisational change and budget change. There's not the time to get someone else up to speed. So they almost kind of had to uh, go back to him in order to sort of ring the changes quickly. It needs to be someone who understands the company and would know know where to to go i think it's it for me it is about more than streaming like i think there are some options there in terms of you could merge espn plus into into disney plus to try and create some efficiencies there but i think to some extent it's it's all the importance of looking at the other business lines in terms of how they can be more profitable whereas i think it's it's almost like the organization ran to one end of the boat on on streaming so much focus there that actually, you know, the eye taken off the ball elsewhere. Okay, and that brings us to the end of part one. This week's deep dive looks into the marvellous world of children's content ahead of the BAFTA Children and Young People's Awards and Festival, which takes place this weekend in London. I spoke to Faraz Osman, Chair of BAFTA's Children and Young People Committee, and Tim Hunter, Executive Director for Learning, Policy and Membership at BAFTA, about opening the world of media to the next generation. We're particularly excited about the festival that's happening this year because it's a it's a real sense that, as as your listeners may know, 195 in Piccadilly, which is BAFTA's home, has been renovated recently and we're throwing the doors open to you know the next generation of audiences and creators. In my view, that's exactly what BAFTA should be there for. It should be there to kind of enshrine what we do brilliantly in this country when it comes to creating the best content and, and make sure that the, the generation that's coming up behind us is excited about what we do here in the UK and are interested in getting involved either as audiences and viewers, but hopefully as, as practitioners and, and creators themselves. Because if we can do that through things like the festival and the awards themselves and, and really recognise why this audience is so important, then the hope is, is that you know, at that early age, we'll, we'll get them excited about what we do here as an industry. And that can only be a good thing. Although I'll probably be out of a job. <laughs> That's the thing I'm worried about. Every time I go to these awards, every time I kind of like do any of these things, it's always a bit of a worry that I'll spot somebody there a bit like, you're clearly more creative and clever and smarter than me. And I've just got to be, either I've got to hire you or just be terrified about my own existence. Oh, I'm just about to meet my replacement. <laughs> give us some specifics about how you're sort of inspiring or you know helping to engage the next generation of program makers through some of the festival work that you're doing BAFTA has these three initiatives Tim can I call them initiatives that sounds really boring things like like moments (laughs) um which is young young creator young games designer and young presenter and those three things really do inspire kind of on screen off screen and and also kind of inspire the next generation of digital talent as well one of the nominees that we have in the presenter category so the actual presenter category of the awards which is Braden, started his career pretty much by, by winning the young presenter competition what about five five six years ago now it might even be longer than that now but he's gone on to present for sky news and uh, and do, do loads of really exciting things and and by his own merit, by a judging panel that's completely independent from BAFTA, he's now been selected as one of the shortlist nominees for Best Presenter 
alongside Ranger Hamza and uh, and you know some people that have have uh, been a bit longer in the tooth when it comes to presenting in this industry. So it's things like that that kind of demonstrate that this is more than just a piece of outreach. This is actually something that is inf- affecting and impacting the industry and bringing that new talent through. For as you wrote a piece in Broadcast back in February, appealing to the industry to protect kids' TV. I mean, what's changed since then? We've had the closure of the Young Audience Content Fund. Does our industry value children's TV as much as it should? One of two things happened after I wrote that article. Either somebody wrote it and went, don't agree with Faraz, let's just close it all down. Or they didn't read it. Like, one of two things happened. And I'd I'd love to know um, what DCMS thought of that and actually if anybody read it. Uh, Look, I think that the closure of, and this is me putting my personal hat on, I I think that the closure of the Young Audience Content Fund is a mistake. And I actually think that it was something that the wider, well, not necessarily the wider industry, but certainly regulation and, um, and DCMS just didn't even know existed and knew that it was making such positive impact across our industry. So I'm hoping that somebody will take a look at that again and we'll see it come back in some form. And also, you know, the licence fee settlement, people fail to recognise, they keep moaning about Gary Lineker's wages and about whether or not the BBC should be competing in an entertainment space or a drama space. But they neglect the fact that actually, when the BBC having to start making hard decisions around content, it is younger audiences that get disproportionately affected because they don't have the same volume of voice. And I think that that's why the work that BAFTA are doing and the awards and the festival is is not just something that we do as a fun way to have a bit of a knees up. It's actually really, really essential in ensuring that people recognise why this industry is so incredibly important because frankly, if you keep defunding it in the way that's happening at the moment, you're going to lose it. And if we lose it, some of the nominees, which I think is a great celebration, but some of the nominees have come from the US through Netflix and Apple TV. We're starting to see that happen now. And, and the international work that's happening is really, really excellent. And we should be continuing to compete in that space, which we are at the moment because it's mixed categories from around the world. But I'd hate to see a world where suddenly all of our nominees for, for Best Factual or Best Drama all come from a territory that's outside of these wilds. Because I just think that that's just a disappointment for, for our kids, as, as well as the wider industry and people that want to work on it. So, yeah, if anybody's listening from the DCMS, can you read my article, please, and do something about it? That'd be lovely. Thanks. Okay. And Faraz mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but, you know, we, we hear about skill shortages in the industry all the time. How important is it to be training that next generation? To- oh, it's fundamentally important. It's really what the kind of side of BAFTA that uh, me and my team work on is is all about. It's, you know, creating, supporting that kind of pipeline where talented people, whatever their background and wherever they are, can see that there's a place for themselves in the industry and have that sort of foundation of skills to, you know, build a career if that's what they want to do. But as Faraz was also mentioning, you know, this sort of uh, idea of the attention economy, it's also really just as viewers, it's really fundamentally important that people at a young age get an appreciation for how things are made because, you know, young people are bombarded with media messages and kind of it's part of, you know, their critical skills is to understand how those media messages are put together so they know which ones to trust and which ones to be suspicious of. I mean, we're coming, uh, this weekend is coming up very quickly, obviously, uh, if someone listening to this would like to take their children along or if there is 
a young person listening to this who wants to get involved, how can they do that this weekend? Or is it too late? No, it's absolutely not too late. There's still tickets available. So the festival weekend takes place on Saturday and Sunday daytimes. We still have tickets available on the BAFTA website. And yeah, everyone is very welcome to come along. We have, of the 14 categories, I think we had 10 represented. Brazen will be there. You know, a whole host of, of, of people talking about their work and giving people insights behind the scenes and lots of creative activities as well. That was Faraz Osman and Tim Hunter. The awards are taking place this Sunday at Old Billingsgate and you can still grab a ticket at events.bafta.org. To hear more from Faraz and Tim on initiatives for young people run by BAFTA, go to patreon.com slash themediapodcast. You'll help support the show and enjoy bonus content. It's time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this with more headlines, plus a media quiz court case special. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And we're back for part two. We still have our Media Masters with us. We've got Charlotte Tobit, James Ball, and Dan Taylor-Watt. We're going to do our weekly uh, stop off at Twitter and just assess some of the goings on uh, in the world of Elon Musk. He's now considering restoring expelled accounts to the platform after another poll of his followers. Charlotte, what, what do you make of this? Well, firstly, it's incredible that he is just making such massive policy decisions on the back of Twitter polls. I mean, I mean, anything he's moaned about, like bot accounts and spam accounts and stuff, and yet he's happy to just let Twitter accounts of which could be from anything make these decisions. Obviously, we were supposed to be waiting for a content moderation council, and that still hasn't appeared. And he's clearly just decided that Twitter users are the content moderation council, which is just incredible, really. But um, about this particular new development with the banned accounts. I mean, Twitter wasn't exactly known for just 
banning for no reason. You know, you'd have all sorts of people making complaints and and nothing coming of it. I don't see that there's loads of people who have unfairly been banned that we need to get back. I think all the people that have been banned did do things, you know, um, whether it's hate speech or, or whatever, but it kind of made me concerned for public figures and, and journalists and people like that who maybe felt a bit safer because, you know, they get a lot of abuse on Twitter, frankly, and especially, um, you know, like female journalists with a big following, they get all sorts of horrible stuff. And being able to get accounts banned for that sort of behavior was at least one line of defense. Like, it just seems like another... Um, nonsense thing from Elon Musk that he doesn't really know what he's talking about but it's going to happen because he's in charge now. <laughs> Musk making it up on the spot. I mean one of the reinstated accounts is of course Donald Trump but he's yet to tweet is he James? So yes he's he's sort of been given back an account that he doesn't want and can't use by contract. Could you just could you just explain that a bit about why, why that is? Um, well Trump has a deal with Truth Social which, you know, I mean, Trump's not going to do this for free now that he can get some money for posting. He's uh, not a man shy of making a dollar. And so he's got to post something on True Social six hours before it can go anywhere else. And he's not the kind of person who'll then assiduously repost it. Unless Elon gives him a better offer, I think he'll stay off there. But, I mean, Musk is really, really screwing his reputation. He's... um sort of came dangerously close to endorsing the kind of groomers theory of, you know, LGBT people are child abusers. He he did that very close in his mentions. And um, the accounts he's got to bring back, I mean, I did quite a lot of work on botnets on Twitter back in the day. Those will all get reinstated under this. Twitter has to flag law enforcement compliance. So its system, when it bans users does flag if it's for like if it's because of illegal content they've also got an automated set of tools that take off the most obvious at reply spam saying you know hi i'm arena from russia you look hot which i i get a lot of despite having a rainbow flag in my bio uh, you, know, you know the clues there um so Everyone not in that category, which will be everyone who's been banned for Nazism, for abuse, for you name it, and for almost every botnet and influence operation on there, will all go back at once because there isn't a flag beyond that level. There isn't something, you know, there's not a reason next to each and everything. So he can knock out illegal and, you know, really obvious spam. But everything else would come back under this amnesty. So it's it's really, it's, you know, it's the purge. It's going to be dire. The Washington Post memorably described it as opening the gates of hell. Dan, is, is, is Twitter a place that you, you want to continue to be? Yeah, I mean, increasingly less so. I think my main takeaway from the, the, the Trump coming back on is, is that Musk is willing to do almost anything to get attention it, it feels like he must have a whiteboard which is day by day what's the thing I can do to get attention whatever it it takes unlike a lot of people I don't think that Twitter's going to suddenly dramatically implode for technology or other reasons I think it's going to become gradually more and more toxic and continue to lose money hand over fist and so it just feels like he's, he's frantically pulling levers to try and 
uh, you know, offset the huge amount that he's paid for this. And, the, you know, he started hugely down financially, but it, it just seems like it's it's a game to him, which is deeply troubling. Yes. OK, well, uh, as always, I'm sure we could talk about Twitter for the entire show. But uh, while while Elon Musk is busy pulling levers, I want you guys to be ready to be pushing buzzers because it's media quiz time we are going to take a look at some stories where the media meets the law and as always i need you to buzz in with your name so dan you will say dan james james (laughs) and charlotte charlotte okay so three questions first one up Uh, which labor mp proposed changes to the law in the uk that would prevent the use of court processes to silence investigative journalists James. (laughs) James. <laughs> I think James just won that. So uh, I'd I'd hope I was. Uh, I was I was at the launch event with him. Um it's uh, Liam Byrne who is working with a coalition across parties, David Davis, uh, you know, former Tory cabinet minister is big on this and uh, they're trying to pass anti-slap laws. It's something at the bureau we care a lot about. We are currently facing a lawsuit that we think is a slap. And it's not trying to stop journalists being subject to libel law and privacy law. It's trying to stop ultra-rich companies and oligarchs being able to sort of bury people in lawsuits for months and years at a time, you know, as happened to Carol Cadwallader, Tom Burgess, Catherine Belton. So hopefully this could be a positive development. Dominic Raab's been quite pro, so fingers crossed. Tell us about the mechanics here briefly. I mean, Liam's amendment has obviously been thrown out, but it's all part of a wider strategy, is that right? Yeah. Essentially, the MOJ and Dominic Grab as Justice Secretary have said they support this, they want to take action on it, make it easier and cheaper to throw out cases like this, but they haven't made parliamentary time for it. And so by attaching it as an amendment, it just keeps it alive and keeps the pressure up in the hope that they'll actually either put it in some bill themselves or make it a standalone piece of legislation. Okay. Thank you, James. So question two, it's it's one nil to you, James. One nil nil, I should say. Which media giant has taken a legal fight worth one hundred million pounds for British publishers to the Supreme Court? News UK, basically they've been battling HMRC for several years. Um, they argue that between 2010 and 2016, the ty- the digital editions of The Times, The Sunday Times and The Sun uh, shouldn't have been paying BAT because the printed newspapers didn't, so uh, newspapers shouldn't have either. Um, it's been a bit of a rocky legal battle um, to start with. They... Uh, lost at the first tier tribunal, then they won at the upper tribunal, then HMRC won at the Court of Appeal. So now it's ended up at the Supreme Court. So they had the hearing this week. We've got to wait for the judgment, obviously. But yeah, they're basically saying, well, they're fundamentally the same. They further the same social policy goals, you know, in, in terms of informing the public and and democracy. Um, HMRC say, well, it's Parliament wanted them to be treated the same, they would have changed the law soon. Um, of course, the law has now changed in May 2020. Uh, Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, changed that uh, digital newspapers and magazines were also zero rated on BAT in the same way as printed newspapers. So it's quite, it's a very interesting battle. And, you know, we sort of worked out only if they won and proved this, then, you know, maybe the industry could get a massive windfall. But one to keep, one to watch for the judge. Well, it sounds like it could be valuable and, and- 
clearly if News UK are pursuing it, they believe that there's there's genuine uh, money in it. Um, be interesting. I mean, what when they say digital editions, do they mean the website? Or is it about the online version of the yeah, newspaper? Yes, so it's it's basically everything but a rolling news website. So, for example, it wouldn't include the Sun's website. It's like the e-reader of the newspaper, so like the PDFs, but also other, uh, you know, like the smart, like with the Times, the edition version. So it's a bit different to the rolling news. So it wouldn't apply to all news websites, but if you have a sort of more edition-based product or a version of the newspaper that that is what they're saying should count thank you very much charlotte there question three uh, so it's it's one one charlotte and james so dan you can level it or someone's going to emerge as a winner so question three prince andrew's former girlfriend ku stark received substantial Damn. damages charlotte. from which publication after being wrongly referred to as a porn star <laughs> i think dad just managed i know it, you actually. love a draw jake in this uh, it was the daily mail and um, who uh, captioned a, a picture of her suggesting that she was a porn star uh, when in fact she had starred in a coming-of-age drama many uh, moons ago, uh, and so she has awarded uh, damages for that uh, libelous uh, story. You are right. We have a score draw again. So we've got a, we've got a tiebreaker, and um, it goes like this. Which MP has joined Times Charlotte. Radio this week? Ed- yeah, <laughs> yes, you're right. The former culture minister will present a new live weekly show uh, on Fridays at 7pm, covering the big political stories of the week. So, Charlotte, you're our winner. Congratulations. <laughs> Where can our listeners find your work? Charlotte, do you want to start off, given you won the quiz? Yes, and I'd like to thank my parents, my teacher's name. Uh, <laughs> yes, as discussed, uh, <laughs> we've got a lovely brand spanking new website at pressgazette.co.uk. And until it becomes that cesspit of hell, I'm on Twitter at Charlotte Tobit. And Dan, how about you? I'm at dantaylorwatt.com and Dan Taylor Watt on all of the socials, including Mastodon, which I still haven't, whatever the verb is to post a message there, but I will do. I haven't dared dip my toe in Mastodon yet. It all seems a bit scary. I think we might have lost James, but James is, as we said at the top of the show, he works at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. I'm sure you can find his work there. Thank you to all of our brilliant guests and to you, our loyal listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's show. To hear more on getting young people involved in the media from Faraz Osman and Tim Hunter and previous deep dive guests, consider becoming a patron of the show. Go to patreon.com slash mediapod. You'll be able to access an archive of deep dive interviews with media experts. That's patreon.com slash media pod. And of course, to help the show, please make sure you've done a couple of small things. Follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on a Friday. Subscribe to podfollow.com slash the media podcast. And tell a friend or colleague about this week's show or tweet about us on Twitter. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill and it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.